to Imogen from Squarepeg. If you want to go out to eat in a major city in Singapore, Indonesia, Thailand, or China, there's only really one platform you'd use to book. If you're listening in one of those markets, a big yellow logo has already bounced into your head. It's the logo of the leading restaurant booking platform called Chope. Chope, by the way, is slang for reserving a seat at a restaurant, but just as the name is synonymous with the action, so too is it synonymous with the brand. Every four seconds, someone books a seat with Chope, and on an ongoing basis, they service thousands of restaurants and over 1.5 million diners. The founder and CEO, Arif, has been part of Squarepeg's portfolio for a few years now, and he's pretty candid about his nine-year journey to date. In this conversation, we talk through Arif's life and end somewhat appropriately with his reflections on the recent COVID pandemic. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. Meet Arif. I was born in Singapore. I grew up here all through my childhood. But then I had the privilege of being uh, able to travel overseas a lot. And then when I was about 14, my parents decided to send me to boarding school in the UK, where my brother already was. It was a a huge eye-opening experience, especially at that age. And I think one of the biggest shocks was culture. And it's easy to say, of course, that there was culture shock. But when you experience it, it's kind of like me explaining to you that when you jump into the pool, it's going to be cold water versus when you actually jump in, right? It's two different levels of you mentally, you might be prepared, but physically it happens to you. I went to a school where there were not a lot of international students. There were a few, but not that many. And so this sense of being other, right? Here in Singapore, I was obviously just, you know, one of the kids and I was part of it. And, and there, were, there were ways that I fit in in some of the, but when you go to, to somewhere where you look, sound, uh, you know, everything is so different, you can't help but feeling other. And so that experience really stood out as formative, right? This feeling of what can help make me feel more at home and feel more comfortable and, and adjusting the expectations, I think. The discomfort of feeling other has clearly stayed with Arif. Even as he found his feet in England, meeting people he describes as some of his best friends even today, he found that the simplest things, hot-wired connection between him and his new friends. Well, you know, uh, teenagers are pretty similar across the world. Teenage boys, the kind of stuff that we get up to and the distractions that we had uh, were pretty similar, right? Like uh, we might have been watching different TV shows, but we were watching the same movies. and we were So, so there was definitely a shared experience in, in terms of all the cool stuff. Over summer holidays, I would come back and I would be discussing the same stuff. After finishing high school, Arif traveled back to Singapore to take up his national service, which since 1967 has been mandated, meaning that at 16 and a half, all male citizens and second generation permanent residents are required to serve two years of national service in the Singaporean uniformed services. And at first, Arif wasn't convinced by the idea. Well, I have to say that At the time that I was drafted into the army, I wasn't super thrilled about the idea, right? It's something that we all know is coming when you grow up as a a male in Singapore, but very few people look forward to it. I had a lot of fear and trepidation. I wasn't a super sporty or or fitness-focused kind of guy, so that was one of my main worries. 
And it turned out to really not be anywhere as bad as I thought. It was exhausting. Don't get me wrong. It was exhausting. But there was definitely a shared camaraderie about the whole thing. It was an adventure in the purest sense of the word. You were doing things that you never imagined in your life you would be doing. Waking up at 5.30 to go to the jungle, to dig a foxhole, to put up a tent, to throw a grenade, all these things, adventure that you never imagined you would do and you were doing it all. And I think the, the biggest lesson that I took away from it was that you know, no matter how scary an experience can seem right beforehand, when you're in the thick of it, it, it rarely is as bad as you think. You can adjust very, very quickly. So I think, I think that was my main takeaway from it. If you can get through that, pretty much you can get through anything, I would say. To be honest, I hadn't realized Singapore had conscription still operating, but hearing him describe the experience as transformational and resilience building reminded me of our Israeli founders who also experienced something similar if on an absolute basis, perhaps a bit more intensely. And after two years of early morning wake-ups and shoe-shining and activity planning, Arif was rolled out of the army and into a law degree. And I say rolled because while Arif studied law and fully intended to become a lawyer when he graduated, his heart was never really 100% in it. It was mostly a passive choice. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And... Law sort of jumped out as something that was a mix of, you know, my parents' expectations would be fulfilled. (laughs) They'd always sort of drip fed me this idea that, uh, you know, law was a a good place for me. And at the same time, it seemed like a pretty fun career. You know, obviously, I'm unfairly biased by having watched way too many TV shows about lawyers. But it did seem like something that I, I would enjoy. But the reality of why I chose not to go in was obviously the reality is very different from what you see on TV, right? And so I had spent enough time by the time I, I, was, I was forced to make that decision, I spent enough time in law firms, uh, done maybe five or six internships, done my research, spoken to and I was aware of what the coming years would hold for me. At the same time, I wasn't looking to switch. I was already committed. I was a bit, you know, not super excited about the career choice, but I was committed to it. And then this thing happened, right? I was just at a event. I was following a friend to a Bain recruiting event and they started introducing the firm and what they did. Now, most people heading to a Bain recruiting event are probably drawn in by the prestige of the company being one of the world's largest management consultancies. But not Arif. No, Arif was there for something else entirely. Honestly, I'll be honest with you guys, I was there for the beer and the food, right? And I was already committed to doing this whole law thing. But when they started talking about the work that they were doing and how they were helping clients and the business problems that they were solving, it resonated with me a lot more. And then I thought, you know what, I'll apply for the job. Let's see, let's learn more about it through the application process. And I did that. It was an extremely tough process, but it felt so rewarding when I finally got that offer months later that that moment came when I had to make a decision. Is this what I want to do for the rest of my life, be a lawyer? Or is this consulting thing exciting enough that I want to do it? And it just spoke to me that it was much more interesting and exciting. And it was also on par in terms of, you know, it was a professional role. So I felt that there was almost no downside to that call, right? It was all the upsides of being a lawyer with even more exciting business problems to solve. 
So Arif was hooked. He'd made the decision to do an about turn, drop the goal of getting a law wig, and instead grab a laptop and become a consultant. But he soon found that there was a pretty steep learning curve going from law to consulting. The funny thing is, the first day that I joined Bain as a consultant, you have to remember that I spent years training as a lawyer. So I, I was used to reading through judgments and legal texts. First day I turned up and they said, all right, you know, let's do some basic Excel stuff here. Let's just do like, you know, pivot tables. And I remember opening Excel for the first time and I was like, so how do you do like two plus five, right? Because when I put two plus five here, then one of my, my the fellow joinees looked at me and said, you have to put an equal sign at the start of the formula, man. What do you, how is this possible? And I was just like, oh, okay. So I have to tell you, I went from there to doing pretty well at the job. And it was, a lot of it was just learning curve and really, really hard work. So the hard skills were already stuff that I just picked up from the job. And then, of course, there was also the more business sense stuff, right? I'd learned so much just by working with these large MNCs, having the exposure to both the partners at Bain and the, and the senior leaders of those companies that I, I, I was in such a privileged position to be able to join these steering committee meetings where I would see them making large strategic decisions. For example, you know, I was working with a refrigeration company that was considering entry into Asia. And we started with a really classic strategy project. You know, we looked at a uh, first filter of demographics and of GDP across countries. And we went into these countries. We spoke to end users of these refrigeration, which were convenience stores and supermarkets. We spoke to suppliers. We understood the dynamics. We came back, we presented to them. They tried to pry into certain things more. By the end of it, we had a really robust understanding where they had zero at the beginning. By the end, they had a really robust understanding of how their industry worked. And it was, I think, such an exciting journey of discovery, right? Almost academic, but at the same time, you're out in the field you know, really bursting into refrigeration warehouses and being like, what refrigeration are you using and why did you choose it? So it was really, really cool to be able to tie it together from the ground up all the way to the, in the boardroom, the strategies that are being made. I loved it. The idea of busting into refrigeration warehouses just totally cracks me up. But I think you can hear the real joy that Arif was finding in his work. It felt real world physical. And once he'd realized that the job of a consultant was to be curious, his horizons cracked open and he decided to head to Stanford and pursue an MBA. It was an opportunity to experience something new, right? I saw it as a crossroads where I could keep going at my current role for a year, another two years. And honestly, that, that wouldn't have been any worse a decision made. But eventually I'd have to figure out what the next thing was. I've always believed that there is a lot I don't know, right? This is, you know, sort of soundbite. You don't know what you don't know. And so I knew about things like consulting, but I hadn't known until I turned up for that recruiting event. And so when I, when I thought about going to Stanford, I saw it as an opportunity to open my eyes even further to see things that I, I had never thought about before. And it really happened, right? I, I had never before known that much about things like not-for-profit, government roles, working in startups, for example. The whole startup thing, the reason I'm on this call with you today and working on Choke today is because 11 years ago, I was bitten by that startup bug while I was at Stanford. And I didn't even know it at the time. It was only about three or four years later, you know, when it matured and, and, and it came out. Now, Stanford is known for its rock star teaching faculty, and it was one of these professors, Andy Ratchliff, an entrepreneur and investor, that left a particularly lasting impression on Arif. 
there was a specific class called Formation of New Ventures run by two great professors. And the, the one I really adore, this really gruff guy, Andy Radcliffe from Benchmark Ventures. And he talked not about the academic side of it, not even about the commercial side of it, but really about the philosophy of and the, the principles of business, right? It was almost like distilled down to the purest form of how to run a business. That's what startups are. Each week we de- deep dive into one topic. So, so this week's case study might be something like hiring at a startup or awkward conversations, having them often, having them early. What does it mean to have an awkward conversation? Why do you need to do it? So just really distilled principles. And I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Of course, the implication was at the end of the day, we'd be talking about things like, you know, IRR and return on invested capital, of course. But at the core of it, it was about what makes a great business person a great business person. And that, that was what got me bitten on it, that the startup world was really a distillation of the purest form of that. For those who don't know Andy Rashliff by name, he's the founder behind Wealthfront and the co-founder at Benchmark, the VC firm behind investments such as eBay, Uber, Twitter, and Dropbox. But it wasn't just the courses or the teachers at Stanford that made an impression on Arif. It was the environment. Studying right in the heart of Silicon Valley felt like taking a hit of adrenaline every day. It felt like everyone was on the path to greatness. So many People were circulating around that environment that ended up in tech companies. For example, I remember specifically from the first quarter finance class, basics of finance. I remember the guy sitting on my left was employee number one at Foursquare, right? And he came back and people were like, whoa, amazing, you know? And the guy on my right started a mobile gaming company that, you know, you could like build a zoo on your game. And he, he received sort of $5 million from Sequoia and, you know, while he was at school, right? While we were in the second, third quarter and it was incredible. And there's just a few examples of, of stuff that was happening within touching distance. And, and you realize that all this stuff that, that you might read on the financial or whatever, this is all just happening right in front of you now. So if you don't do it, if you don't jump on that wave, then you're kind of foolish, right? Because it's happening to you now and it's, it's as easy as reaching out and grabbing it. But Arif felt a real pull to go home. His heart was in Asia. And so he began to pursue a burgeoning interest in private equity, landing in a firm in Indonesia, which seems like kind of an odd move until you hear who he was working for. I think at that part of my life, I was just entering my my 30s. (laughs) So (laughs) quite a long time ago. But your priorities start shifting slightly, right? And I had spent years away from home. You know, I'd left to go to boarding school. And sure, I'd skip back every now and then. But I never spent a really prolonged period back home. And, and so on some level, I was thinking to myself, you know, it's important for me to start putting roots down somewhere, right? Without thinking about it from a family perspective, I was more like, you know, if I'm thinking about it from a career perspective, where am I going to start building my networks and, and building my business and opportunities and so on. So that was one view that after 15 years away, it was time to come back. And the second part of it was Asia, right? Uh, I really had a soul searching moment, I think, where I had to make that decision. And it relates back to how I felt about taking a career in law versus not 
it was always going to be easier for me to just follow the path in front of me and, and stay there. But I was never going to be fully native in that area. And so that sense of otherness, right, was always going to bother me a little bit. And so I, I would almost say it's a very personal decision. I, I chose to, to work, uh, to come home, quote unquote, home back to Asia and also to focus really on Asia as a growing market, right? I saw so much opportunity. So you combine the two, it's almost like saying that you have a particular domain expertise and and an unfair advantage within Asia. And then second sphere, you see Asia as really, really interesting, huge demographics, growing quick, GDP rising. You combine those two, that Venn diagram, there's me in the middle. And so that's what drove me to make that decision. You know, the partner that I was working for in the firm was actually very similar <laughs> to, to the, the way I described Andy Radcliffe in the, the sense that while the industry, the private equity industry is generally viewed as very dollars and cents driven, you know, the guy that I worked for, Tom, was actually, he was a real philosopher at heart. He would talk about things like character is destiny, right? He spent a lot of time talking about that. I remember one time I organized a field trip for a bunch of students from Stanford. You know, they were doing a tour of Indonesia and they would come and spend some time with different business leaders. And so I had him meet them. And rather than spending like an hour talking about, you know, emerging trends in private equity in, in Indonesia, he spent an hour talking about the importance of family to people in finance. I'm sure he also talked about you know, macro trends and all this stuff. But the important part that I really took away from when I was at that meeting was he said, you know, we spend hours, weeks of our life, months of our life stressing about our career. We think about how we want to plot the next move in our career. What's the next thing? How often do you sit back and think about uh, what, what do you want to do with your family? What, do you think about planning what your family life is going to be like in two years time? Five, you might have a career vision for five years time. Do you have a family plan for five years time? And I was like, you know, it was, it was a surprise, but it was also really interesting. And I think that was what drew me to working there. The idea that it was an all-rounded experience. While we were working with dollars and cents, there was a culture underlying that that was a lot deeper than just deliver the returns, right? It was about a way of thinking that created the success that would ultimately deliver the returns. I would never call starting a startup a no-brainer, right? It's a no-brainer in the sense that maybe sometimes you really have to put every thought and logic aside to start a company, but it's not a no-brainer in the sense that it was a, oh yeah, this completely makes sense. I should just do it because it's so easy. It really was not the case for me. Even though I saw people around me succeeding and doing all those things, and while I might have said, uh, this seems possible and I'm, I even felt FOMO, right? Why wasn't I doing it? The amount of courage taken to do something like that is completely different level than what I had at that time. And so I continued on what was pretty brave path that I thought was daring and moved from consulting into private equity, which was more to do with investing in entrepreneurs, a bit like the VC job. And to me, that was already a big leap, right? So when I made that leap, I felt like I was doing something that was logical 
uh, and also quite risky. And I never once at that time considered entrepreneurship or startup as an option. Never. I thought about going back to consulting. I thought about private equity. I thought about maybe investment banking, you know, other finance jobs. Never once thought about would I do a startup thing. But like I said, it was so deep inside, right? It had borrowed that seed, that little, you know, idea had borrowed so deep inside that it, when it came out two or three years later, it didn't come out as a, I have a, an idea that I'm willing to stand up and die for. It was more like, you know, I've been sitting on this thing, this idea for two years and it's been borrowing and it's been gnawing away at me. If I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. Oh, I may as well just get it done and see how it works out. It may fail and whatever, but you know, I, I feel like I should just do it. Arif says where Chope began was a finance class in Stanford. He was trawling the public markets looking for interesting stocks when he came across a company called OpenTable, an online restaurant reservation service. It stood out to him immediately because he'd only recently used the service to book a table at a restaurant himself. And the more he read about the company, about their IPO mid-2008 financial crisis, the more it intrigued him. So I had a really good understanding of the company by the time I was done with that project. And it occurred to me, I was thinking to myself, you know, this is a company that could probably work in Asia. I don't understand why it doesn't. But I had no intention of starting it myself. I just thought, you know, maybe I'll invest in the company a little bit, you know, a couple of thousand or whatever I have to invest, you know, believe that it will happen in Asia. So then I went on my merry way. And then life happened. And then sort of Two years later, I'm sitting in my private equity job at my desk in Indonesia, and I'm still thinking about it. And I'm like, why doesn't it exist? Because every day I'm reminded of this idea. Every time I try to make a restaurant reservation, every time I go to a restaurant, why doesn't it exist? Why does it exist? And so I started speaking to friends about it, or more accurately, I never stopped speaking to friends about it. And one of my friends who was working in a tech company, in a gaming company, so not, not directly relevant, but nonetheless a tech guy, it was very encouraging. He said, you know, this is a great idea. You should go and do it. I said, no, not me. I'm just, you know, it just seems like a weird gap in the market that, that somebody should exploit. And then he's like, so what would you call it if you did it? I said, well, I, I've been thinking of a few names that might work for it. You know, I, I, I was like in denial. I, I was thinking about it if I was starting it, but at the same time, I was like, no, I won't, I won't, I won't. But I had thought through some names and I was, I was like, how about something like Eat Seat? And he said, that's a stupid name. Because how do you, you know, people are going to, uh, are trying to spell it when they type in the website. It's like S-I-T-S-E-A-T. You know, it's just hard. How about chope? Which in Singapore means to reserve. It's very colloquial slang, right? It's difficult to mistake it for anything else. So I was like, nah, somebody already has that. You know, somebody's bought that URL. It's five letter word. I'm sure that we checked it. Chope.com is gone. Chope.sg is gone. Chope.com.sg, ah. It was like, you know, on one of these URL domain hosting sites, it was like, sure, you know, buy for $13. So I went back, bought it for $13. And next thing you know, I have this asset, right? And he says, okay, so let's, uh, let's think about what we're going to put on this website. So we did, you know, one of those GIFs of this guy doing the construction work, under maintenance, preparing for launch. And then we said, you know, that seems a little cheesy. Let's put something else. How about a countdown timer? Okay, so let's set a date, right? First of June. Uh, let's set a countdown timer for it. Okay, click. Oops, now we've just set ourselves a deadline to launch this thing. The third factor which really made this thing take off the ground was when I was doing all this high-level stuff, I also Googled for, you know, restaurant reservations Singapore and this little other websites that this other guy had started 
came up and, you know, I remember there was a counter at the top of his website, the number of restaurants you can now book on this website. It's 19. The next day it was 20. The next day it was 21. Oh my God, the pressure, right? I was like watching this guy. And so it started to really like hit me like other people were doing it. If I wasn't doing it, somebody else is going to do it. And suddenly, the service Arif wasn't even admitting to himself that he wanted to build was in production. And the race to launch first was on. Nothing like a little competition to speed up execution. And alongside a couple of friends that Arif had brought on side to help build out the product, Chope launched almost bang on the countdown. I remember it as clearly as it was yesterday. Somebody pressed the launch button and we launched with nine restaurants on June 15th, 2011. It was supposed to launch at midnight, but our lazy developer wanted to go home early, so he pressed it at 11.45 and we were live. Uh, Nine restaurants. It was pretty disastrous. It was pretty disastrous because of those nine, about six of them very quickly said, this doesn't make sense for me. So Cho's business model, uh, our product model, is that we provide the restaurants with technology that replaces the pen and paper, right? So most restaurants have this book, it's sitting outside, they're writing stuff in it. And we say, instead of doing that, why don't you do it on a laptop? And we bought these laptops, we licensed this table management system, we gave it to them to do it. And what we realized was that out of those nine, six of them came back and said, actually, you know, this is really difficult. It's just much easier to use a pen, right? Everybody knows how to use a pen. And I'm not like, you know, I'm not running, you know, a logistics freight shipping business where you need to coordinate. It's just, I got seven tables. I need to fill them up. Like, what do I need to do this? And they were right. They were absolutely right. So all this, you know, the laptop that we bought, the stuff that we licensed, all was, was a failure. And I was like, what am I doing? What am I spending my life doing here? And what was really interesting was then I could have chosen to focus on that part and say, okay, you know, this is a complete failure. 70% of our clients are not using this. But instead, what was really interesting was the remaining three guys who we went back to and they were like, wait a minute, so you're still using it? And they were like, yeah, we're using it. Well, do you like the system? They're like, no, we hate the system. It's terrible, but we're using it. Like, you know, you need to fix this and that and this and this and this, but, you know, we need to use it because otherwise, how are we going to get our customer database and how are we going to manage our tables? They were like, oh, wow, okay. So it's become an essential piece of your operations. You hate it, but you're still using it. I can work with that. Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, once said, if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product, you've launched it too late. By which measure, Arif and his team had timed the launch perfectly because the first iteration was a bit crap. But it was also a gift because it signified the start of finding product market fit. Arif and his team began building pattern recognition, finding the restaurants that were using Chope, noticing who stuck with it, why they stuck with it, and learning what problems were the most important to solve. But at that time, you know, I think it would have been easy to generalize and say, yeah, this isn't working. It's not going to work in Asia, right? But it took a sudden dogged determination, which suddenly wasn't all me. It was, it was a lot of it was from the team to say, actually, you know what? Don't think about this as all bad. There's a lot that we're learning here from these failures that are teaching us things. So it was a really great moment. That was the purest form of building a business, right? You're not selling a fork. You're not selling a commodity. You're selling something entirely new, a solution that no one has ever tried before. And you're asking people to pay you money for it. And 
you're putting it all on the line and people are throwing it away. And so it really is the, the sort of extreme sports of business. And just as getting really good at a sport requires time and practice, Arif and his team at Chope started to refine their product, learn from their mistakes, and slowly but surely improve. They listened to their customers, learned all about the industry, and as the company grew, they started to outgrow their original mission of simply allowing diners to make a reservation at restaurants in real time. We became not just the provider of a system, we became a technology partner. It's funny, I was so naive in the beginning of my journey to think that we would provide a restaurant with a laptop with a system, train them on how to use it, and then that'd be it. We'd duck out and that'd be the end of that. In the same way somebody comes delivers a TV to your house and you, know, you, don't, you don't talk to the delivery man every day. But as it turns out, we went so much further than that, right? We became the partners for these restaurants, the technology partners. I cannot describe the number of times that they call it, the, the amount of interaction that they have with our operations team today is incredible. <laughs> you know, oftentimes you're just like, actually, um, it's not my job. But what we see there is that this is an industry that's hugely underserved by technology partners and they're screaming for help. And so we stepped into that role, right? We didn't step into selling them stuff. We stepped into helping them solve their problems. And I think it paid off because it really caused us to iterate our product to solve problems that they kept screaming at us needed to be solved. They'd be like, you know, I'm paying you guys, you know, for this table management thing, but you know, there's other problems here. Like I can't send SMSs to my diners to remind them that we're having dinner tonight. You know, one way of me say, actually, that's not really my job. But we were like, actually, we don't have that feature, but it's coming. Just hold on. And so then we build it, we get it out to them, and then you know, we charge them an SMS fee, a small cut of it. And so we just keep improving based on customers screaming at us, telling us what we want, to the point where you know, it's become part of our product process, right? We have discovery now. We just, you know, it's, it's such an important part. We discover what restaurants want. So as we stand today, we've gone much further than table management. We've gone into things like queuing systems. We manage the phone lines. We connect to the restaurant's point of sale systems. We manage the reservations, of course. We manage the tables. We manage the CRM. So whenever they have a guest come in, they know what it's a VIP or it's a blacklisted customer. Uh, we connect to their marketing tools. We are their marketing tools so that they can send out things through the Chope system to their own diners that they want to you know, advertise the latest dish or something. We've gone even to delivery with the coronavirus uh, lockdowns happening across the world. You know, we're powering deliveries for our restaurants. We're doing promotions and deals platform for them to reach out to diners with off-peak vouchers, all kinds of stuff for the restaurants uh, that really stem from this core practice of them telling us what they need and us building it for them. And then at the other side, you know, there's also the product for the diner. And initially we thought of it as where we're building a website where diners can open up a, a page for the restaurant, make a reservation. Okay. But we also wanted to add more stuff. So we started adding more content, menus, pictures, right? And people started telling us, we love this stuff. We can't find these pictures anywhere else. We want to see what they're serving. And then we started adding other things that they could do on our website. So like all this deals and stuff. So today, Chope is sort of a multi-use platform where people can open up the Chope app and interact with restaurants in many ways, right? We digitally enable those restaurants in many, many ways, not just through reservations. And the final part I'll say is that then we started realizing that people weren't just 
interacting with these restaurants on show. They wanted to have the same functionality on multiple platforms. Platforms started coming to us. Guys like Google, Tianping, TripAdvisor, bloggers, uh, social networks, Facebook, Instagram. They want to have the book functionality. They want us to offer the deals, buy a deal from their Shopee, from their Lazada. So all these platforms started coming to us and thinking of us as the tech enabler for this segment, this ecosystem. So that's what we've become, really. We, we're no longer just a system that we sell. We've become a platform. It's a huge responsibility because we have diners' interests, we have restaurants' interests, we have third parties that we have to balance. But at the same time, there's so much stuff that just moves through our platform that there's so many opportunities there that I would say that we haven't fully even capitalized yet. And I think that's where the future is going for us. But before we look too far into the future, I wanted to hear Arif's reflections on Chope now that they're almost 10 years into their journey. First of all, I will say that I don't think there's ever been a moment in the last nine years where I've been able to sit back and say, you know what, we're killing it. This is it. We're done. You know, checkbox, success. I think part of the culture at Chope and probably at many other startups is this idea of being insecure overachievers, right? No matter what level of success you have, you tend to think that there's always more and, and there's something that you're missing or, or there's something that you're just not seeing. What is the journey to getting to that whatever level of success I perceive we've had? I would say that linking the dots backwards, it's really been about perseverance and grit more than any other single factor that's helped us get to where we are. There have been so many moments all through the spectrum where it has made more sense to just give up and to say, you know what, we tried our best and through no fault of our own, external factors have happened, unavoidable disasters, uh, things that you couldn't predict or ever imagine happening. People would just pat you on the back and say, you know, no pride lost here. You tried your best, everything, you know, we respect what you did, can't happen. But it takes, I think the most important factor that helped us get where we were was even in those moments, we said, you know what, going to keep going, nothing to lose. And I still believe that actually the underlying, the vision at the end of this, all this is that somebody's going to build this giant, great service. And if we give up now, somebody else is going to take it and we would be giving up the lead on this, right? So I would identify that probably as one of the main factors. The other, the other parts of the story uh, never underestimate luck, right? There have been so many times when we just got lucky. For example, you know, let's talk about this relationship with SquarePeg that just very lucky to get into this, this relationship, to be honest, because the irony was at the time when we were raising uh, a round that SquarePeg led in 2017. We actually didn't reach out to SquarePeg to speak. Years ago, you know, uh, I had received a cold email from somebody called Dan Krasnerstein. And he said, you know, heard about your company, want to find out more. I did the call, didn't think about it. Years passed. Next year, he called up, says the same thing. Year passes. Next year. And so I never really thought about it. But then when the time came to start fundraising, I didn't think about it either. And I was reaching out to all the usual people that I talked to and so on. And then one afternoon, you get this call, get, get this email, and, and I was like, oh, okay, sure, why not? Have the call, you know, explained what we were doing, sudden pause. Really? Why didn't you talk to us about it? And then I was like, I don't know. I just, I, I didn't think about it. Like, I'm stupid, right? Honestly. And they were like, you know, can you send us the materials? Can you tell us more about this and that? And, you know, we'll do a follow-up call. And I was like, sure, why not? 
And it all worked out, right? I mean, obviously there were ups and downs and there were moments, but look at us today. And so I can't honestly say that it was down to my superior perseverance or intellect or business sense. It was, I just got lucky. I just got that email. I replied it and it happened. So I would say never underestimate the power of luck in getting us to where we are today. Arif's attitude towards investing has changed a lot since the lucky set of circumstances that led Squarepeg and Chope towards each other. And I asked him to reflect on them. I would say that when I first started out, fundraising seemed like a really, a really exciting activity, right? To validate that you are on the right path. If investors feel that your product is interesting, then you're doing the right thing. Uh, and that's often where it starts out. You take the direction from what the investment community feels about you, which is okay. They probably get a lot more exposure to similar companies than in any individual person does. As we've matured, I would say that that experience has turned into more of a partnership, right? It's less about validating our product and our business and more about us explaining why we are doing what we're doing. So becoming more steadfast and motivated and sure about our plans. And then also at the same time, finding the investors that we feel fit us and those plans best. I think our relationship with SquarePeg is a very good example. One of the things that we really enjoyed about the relationship is the fact that you guys specialize in marketplaces. You know, it's easy to say, but it's also really tough because marketplaces come in all shapes and sizes and even being able to specialize in marketplaces is a very wide skill set so when we have these conversations about you know what when is the right time to start consumer marketing um, how deep do we go how do what metrics do we measure to measure the success of our network effect these are all factors which really matter and having to learn that from scratch is tough so i think the partnership works both ways we teach you about our business you teach us about stuff that you've learned from other businesses that look a bit like ours. And in the middle, you have this beautiful synergy where it's mutually beneficial, right? That said, the fundraising process is never easy. And I think I firmly believe in the principle of filling your canteen when you're at the river, not when you're thirsty. So I would say that um, one of the lessons we've learned over the years is that if things are going well and the market is happy and things are generally shiny, then it's maybe worth spending the time to put that storyline together, go out and speak to investors now, even though it may not seem like top priority. And that's really, really a, a tough decision to make. But I think the benefit of experience, uh, I, would, I would advise that. Among the beliefs like this one that Arif has formed during his career and journey with Chope is an idea of how to recruit the right people into his business. We try to codify the fit of the people that we hire because it's an obvious statement, but we often still make the mistake of underestimating cultural fit. What we try to do is measure that person on the dimensions that we think our culture excels on. So in our case, we have three vectors, staying hungry, thinking bigger, and one team. And it's not perfect, but at least we force ourselves to think, will this person live by the same characteristics that the rest of the team has agreed and signed up to live by. The second thing that we try to do that's a little bit unconventional, I would say, is have a lot of people who are going to be working with this person interviewing 
uh, that person and have a voice and understanding in that hiring process. So, you know, often I get pushed back on this. Oh, isn't it weird, like, you know, to let somebody who's reporting to them have a decision in that? Well, I actually don't find it that weird because if the person is going to be working under your new hire, then you, you, that's such an important relationship and you want to make sure that they respect that person. You know, you, you know that feeling when you hire somebody and the person under them comes back to you and says, oh my God, thank you for that hire. This guy is so great. He's such a great manager. He's made my life so much. I'm learning so much now, right? That moment is when you know almost better than any other signal that you've done a good job of hiring when the person who's working for them is thrilled to have them as a manager. I think the harshest, you know, talk about awkward conversations early, have that awkward conversation at the interview stage. Don't have it six months later where you're like, you know, the guy that I'm working for that you hired, not great. That's a much harder conversation to have later. There's one thing that we haven't talked about in depth yet. And that's the obvious change that would have affected not only Chope's business, but your life too. Depending on where you are in the world, it may actually have been a really long time since you've been able to make a reservation at a restaurant. With coronavirus bringing lockdowns and social restrictions globally, Chope and its clients were feeling the harsh reality of how the virus damaged the hospitality industry. Yeah, certainly a unexpected journey. It really started off with our Shanghai business in sort of December, January, shutting down. And we obviously, like, I think many people in the world couldn't have foreseen this coming and said, yeah, you know, it seems like it's a temporary thing. And indeed, it was, right? There was a lockdown and it opened up. And so it felt like the wave had come and gone. And I remember specifically having a conversation in February where we were like, yeah, you know, it feels like we've touched the bottom on this one. Like, you know, let's just move on. That's, that's it. And how wrong we were, right? We were living in denial. Uh, that we had a first case in Singapore, second, third, and we were still like, nah, I can't be that bad. I can't foresee them ever locking down. And then it happened, right? It just got worse and worse. And then eventually the unthinkable happened and they locked down. And I can tell you that the biggest mistake that we made was we, we weren't paranoid enough. But then the biggest move that we took that was right was that as soon as we admitted that, okay, you know what? <laughs> Actually, this thing is pretty bad and it's going to, you know, it could be a lot worse than we think. We just came to that realization and we stopped being in denial and we just acted, right? I mean, forget trying to stick to your guns and, and all this proud stuff. That you just admit that you're wrong and act now. So we had a bunch of really tough decisions we had to make over the, the period of March and April where we had, unfortunately, to do things like pay cuts and put people on furloughs. And it was really, really tough. But I'm glad that, you know, six months down the road that we acted sooner because with every day that was passing, we would have been, you know, getting closer and closer to this existential crisis if we hadn't acted sooner. So I'm glad we did. And then emotionally, I would say that actually it was a really interesting time because I didn't feel depressed that this had happened. I, I honestly didn't feel that way. I felt like we were at the cutting edge of some revolution that was happening in our industry. There were obviously a lot of things happening globally and, and on the health side, I won't even comment on that, but certainly in our industry, you know, while we were disproportionately affected, it also caused us to explore new opportunities outside our comfort zone. 
that we never would have done. So things like delivery, restaurants were coming to us and saying, hey, can you do this? Come on, you can do it, you can do it. And so we got our act together, 72 hours, we launched the first iteration of our delivery product. We went back to really being that startup, the scrappy startup mentality. We were launch, we were doing stand-ups every day at eight in the morning. We were launching new products. We were launching new features. It really felt like we were back in startup mode. There was so much energy. People were screaming every time we got a new delivery restaurant. We were beating competitors, you know, all this stuff. And it was really cool. Despite everything that was happening, it was like emotions were running high. And of course, from a revenue perspective, you know, wow, it was terrible. But a lot of the upside was that we rediscovered a lot of the strengths of our team and also the systems that we built, right? We were able to engineer and build entirely separate delivery and ordering systems pretty much overnight. And we wouldn't have been able to do that if we hadn't had strong infrastructure in the first place. So, so it was really cool, yeah. So with all of his knowledge, experience and resilience through harsh times, here's Arif's advice to you on what it takes to be a good founder. I would want to put a shout out to anyone who's listening and is feeling that pressure from the struggle and the stress of startups and entrepreneurship, right? I think it's a lot has been said about it, but I still feel I'll say it one more time that it is tough. There is a lot of mental stress and a lot of struggle. And, it, and I encourage anybody to find a good mentor, find a good network, and find people that you can really be honest with about the challenges without worrying that you sound whiny or you sound weak or you sound you know, like you're not, you're not crushing it. Uh, to put the startup terminology, we're always crushing it, right? So that's one of the biggest changes that, that's, that's happened to me over the nine years. I, I think I've been through a phase where this started to define me and it became everything that was important to me. And then a phase where I I said, I, you know, that's so exhausting. I don't know if I can do that. And then a phase now where I'm at peace about it, where there are some parts that are going to be great and some parts that are going to be terrible. And I think we have to focus on it as a business that has its weaknesses and strengths. And that is all it is, but that is also everything that it is. It's amazing. And it's not everything. It's a journey. It really is a journey to get there. That's it for our conversation with Arif from Chope. You know, one of the things I most love about putting together this podcast alongside my wonderful producer, Romy, is that I reckon our founders are really candid in the way that they answer these questions. And I hope you feel like you get to listen to what I know is a really honest appraisal of someone's startup journey. And so today I want to thank Arif in particular for joining us and for being so candid. We'll see you next week. <laughs>